I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to Jared Casiglia. Jared is the founder and CEO of True Staffing Partners and has over 14 years of experience representing talent in e-discovery and cybersecurity. He has successfully placed over 2,500 professionals in full-time and temporary positions at Fortune 1000, AM Law 200, Cyber 500, Big Four, and throughout the ESI and cyber consultancy, service provider, and software community. His ability to identify, deliver, mentor, and help retain talent has given him the privilege of quickly becoming the globally recognized go-to individual for clients and candidates in need of staffing solutions or career guidance and management in cybersecurity. Jared's unique style of representation, vast network of relationships, and subject matter expertise has helped earn him and True a host of awards including ranking on the Inc. 5000 fastest growing private companies in America for two years in a row. Jared was awarded Best Reviewed eDiscovery Session at Infuse 2017 for his lecture and Q&A on Transitioning Your Career from ESI to Cybersecurity. In this episode, we discuss the commonalities between eDiscovery a decade ago and the cybersecurity industry now, the cybersecurity talent gap and the numbers we hear, how to hire quality information security professionals, the drain on the federal talent pool, when to get kids involved in cybersecurity, security training, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Hey, Jared, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for having me, Doug. Yeah, well, it's it's my pleasure. I've, I've wanted to get somebody that's been uh, in the recruiter space that is a recruiter I actually like and not just a blind LinkedIn <laughs> <laughs> email. Uh, you're somebody I've, I've known and respect for a number of years, uh, both in the e-discovery and cybersecurity world. So I'm glad to have you on. I appreciate that. Thank you. So, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about your journey into getting into recruiting um, and, and kind of being a talent acquisition person. Sure. Uh, it's a long journey. I've been doing staffing in some regard and talent representation for over 20 years. I kind of fell into e-discovery um, a few years out of school when I was looking for work uh, to help uh, pay for my theatrical ambitions and habits. I'm a NYU undergrad in theater. I won't go too much in that tangent for our listeners, but uh, you'd be amazed how much directing a Broadway musical has in common with building the human capital infrastructure of a Fortune 1000 cybersecurity department. It's actually quite a lot of overlap. I can imagine. <laughs> well, you know, you got to bring together a lot of diverse people, diverse personalities, um, uh, competing agendas for time and budget and uh, a voice. Uh, and I think all of those things are, are very uh, cross-applicable to those disciplines. Having said that, I've long left the uh, theater industry uh, and moved into recruitment, and I fell into e-discovery because it was opportunistic. I got into e-discovery staffing in the early 2000s, read an article by George Socha, uh, thought, wow, this is going to be a really fast-growing industry. And when we started looking at resumes of people in that industry, we saw that they were Jumping jobs every six to 18 months, they were getting increases in salary to the tune of 20 to 50% with each of those job moves. 
Um, and I knew that wasn't sustainable for a community, for an industry, or for individual professionals. And so I knew they would need good representation, both the clients in terms of helping find and retain the best talent, and the talent in terms of helping them make smarter, healthier career decisions, both in the short and long term. I've been doing e-discovery staffing for 15 years. I moved into cybersecurity a little over five years ago. We acquired another staffing company that was uh, focused in that niche to hyper-accelerate our ability to service the cybersecurity community as much as we had been the e-discovery community. And I do believe there's a lot of overlap between those two communities and will be even more overlap between those two communities over the next five to 10 years. That's yeah. a quick snapshot. I'll, I'll stop there for a second. Yeah, I can say, I mean, there's, there's definitely, I think, a lot of the similarities that we saw in the early 2000s when e-discovery became a thing from 2002 to 2006 and the change of the federal rules. Now we're kind of seeing that with the public impact of a lot of data breaches and cybersecurity being the hot new thing. We see a lot of people moving around. You see these people that are they're really in places less than a year. They're moving around, demanding kind of exorbitant salaries, and companies are kind of jumping on them because if they have anything, they're they're willing to take them. So it seems to still be a little bit of the Wild West and really similar than we saw, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I love to use the term the Wild West because when I gave my state of the industry at the beginning of this year at Legal Tech New York, um, you know, I called eDiscovery from 2002 to 2006 the Wild Wild West, and I just saw a webinar that Robert Herjavec, um, you know, the founder of the Herjavec Group, which is, I think, by most standards, the number one revenue-generating cybersecurity company in the world, uh, he called cybersecurity the Wild Wild West right now. So I agree. Yeah, there's a lot of um, job movement. There's a 3.5 million person talent gap from available job openings to available talent. I think it's going to be very difficult as Americans for us to bridge that gap over the next several years unless we think differently about how we're hiring and how we're educating our talent in order to fill that void. And, uh, you know, we're here to help with that. That's, that's why we got into the space. Yeah, and definitely, you know, and that's, that's something I want to touch on too. You know, we hear the numbers of this large talent gap. And, you know, I guess, where do these numbers come from? Where, where are they, you know, what's the source material on it? How trustworthy can they be? And some, some of the folks I've spoke to, they said, you know, there might be some double counting where, for example, a, a job rec will be out from a corporation and maybe a three recruiting companies or a placement agency might list that as well and that the numbers might be inflated. Is that the case? I mean, uh, maybe a little bit, but I don't think that they're inflated to the tune of 1.5 million jobs. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, I get most of my data from different reputable sites. Um, this particular stat, the 3.5 million, was published in Forbes magazine, and it came from research done by Cybersecurity Ventures, which is a holding company that's owned by the Herjavec Group. And they publish also a list called the Cyber 500, which is a pretty well-respected list of the top 500 cybersecurity service providers in the, uh, in the world. And, um, you know, that has been echoed, you know, I think a year ago it was a, a, a $1 to $1.5 million gap, and they're projecting that $3.5 million gap by, I think, 2020, to be honest, if my research is correct. Um, there's also a lot of other resources out there that um, – you can find this kind of statistical information. I know a study was done by BMC Group that included some statistics about how many CISM, CISA, uh, and CISSP jobs were posted on the internet versus the amount of people that actually hold that certification. And the discrepancies between available talent and open job requisitions, even if there's some 
duplicative postings between recruitment organizations and the actual end employer. I mean, we're talking about gaps, you know, for a CISA, I think at like 37% and the CISM in the like 59% um, of, of opportunity to talent in terms of there being, you know, huge gaps. Um, and those numbers are, are real in terms of who holds those certifications. So I trust those numbers because those come from the certifying bodies and they publish them. Um, and if we take the approximations of what, you know, a reputable company like BMC is doing when they do market intelligence, I, I think it's pretty accurate. And look, we, we feel it, right? Like it's, it's, it's uh, for me, I validate it through emotion because I'm a theater guy, <laughs> you know, originally. And I feel it when we're out there recruitment, uh, recruiting, you know, when we're in e-discovery recruitment right now, we need a relativity project manager in New York. We got a dozen of them. The, the market's changed. It's matured. It's consolidated. And when somebody needs that, they're going to get six resumes right away. When a client calls me and they tell me they need, you know, an OSCP certified pen tester who's got red team, blue team experience and is under $150,000 because that's what they're willing to pay. Really tough search. Yeah, I'll Not take, I'll take three of those that. if you can find it. You know, it, it, so it's different. You know, what's available on the market, we feel it because those jobs are harder to fill. They're more competitive. And also, you know, there's an element that's very different about e-discovery and cybersecurity that's important to articulate, which is most of the talent in cybersecurity in the United States is coming out of federal agencies which is radically different than how e-discovery functioned, right? E-discovery came from a background of paralegals, legal assistants, attorneys, people in the legal field, maybe some legal IT even, who were originally the pioneers that became e-discovery professionals. In cyber, it's a lot of government employees, a lot. The, the volume of them have some federal, state, city, local background. And those individuals have realized over the last two to three years that their ability to monetize their experience in the private sector is exponential. And so a lot of people are making a lot of moves and they've been in federal agencies potentially for decades. And so they have a different understanding of the value of tenure versus the value of immediate increases in compensation based on a very competitive, um, high demand, low supply marketplace. And that needs coaching. Right. Coaching. Yeah. And we, we've certainly seen that. I've sp spoke to a few other guests that have been on the show and we kind of talk, we've talked about the, the federal kind of uh, talent gap vacuum that's happening. So while, you know, folks like myself in the private sector trying to hire consultants, love absorbing those people, we can get it. But are we thinking about necessarily thinking further enough down the line about some of the downstream risks to federal agencies that need cybersecurity when we're pulling a lot of these people out it's all we're doing is moving pieces around the board we're not necessarily filling that back-end gap and are we opening ourselves up to downstream risk well i mean look this is where you really have a not, not to get too off on this topic doug but this is where you have a little bit of an existential crisis right as a private sector employee who's pulling talent from federal agencies in the country to which protects the private sector's data to some extent, right? And is monitoring it and watching it and protecting us all as citizens of this country. Um, but this is also one of the critical differences between hiring an employee who for their whole professional career has been very mission focused versus very revenue focused. And when the private sector hires employees of a high caliber, there's always a revenue focus 
first, generally speaking, particularly in service providers, versus a mission focus. And I think that transition from being mission to revenue focus has been really challenging for a lot of federal employees, has been really challenging for a lot of employers who have hired those federal employees and are trying to help them make that existential transition, simply said, to sales and not to mission. And I think the monetization of the relationships and experience that a lot of private sector consulting firms and software companies expected to reap the benefits of from hiring federal talent over the last two years has not quite monetized to the tune that they had hoped and expected for. And that seems to be a, a, a pattern across the private sector. Yeah, I can definitely see there's there's a big cultural shift when you talk about the monetization of the time, um, where we hire people, we have to focus on utilization, margins, and revenues. That's a new world for a lot of people that have either come out of law enforcement or federal agencies, uh, where we're saying, hey, you know, you, you have to hit a certain amount of billable hours a week to them that it, it doesn't always jive so well. 100%. I also think there's a critical difference between um, some federal employees who are used to receiving inbound notifications versus changing their style to outbound asking for business, which is obviously not what the federal government does. So that transition, uh, culturally speaking, I think is particularly challenging for people. Hey, I'm going to go ask people I know for business or ask people that I helped service when I was at the federal agency and they were breached for their business. That, I think, has been tough for some. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, kind of looking at, stepping back and looking at cybersecurity hiring as a whole, what are some of the unique challenges that you find uh, for placing or acquiring cybersecurity talent outside of maybe e-discovery or other technology fields? Sure. Well, the first challenge is there just aren't the volume of them compared to the opportunities that are available. So that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is, you know, because the legal industry is, for all intents and purposes, the private sector, they are more revenue-focused and therefore have adopted social media as a means with which to evangelize their individual career ambitions or company ambitions very differently than a lot of federal talent who's not quite as visible all the time on social media, which is a resource that most recruitment firms are using aggressively to identify the talent. Um, and look, hackers don't advertise themselves in the same way that lawyers do, right? It's very different. Uh, on the hacking side of things, when you go to you know, pull proactive people, they're not necessarily as visible or they're much more careful about covering their social media tracks or positioning themselves quite visibly on social media. Um, also, a lot of the talent's inside corporate America, which was never the way e-discovery was, right? E-discovery talent was at law firms and vendors, and there was very little, and there remains very little hiring inside the corporate sector for e-discovery. Most corporations for e-discovery, some of them have hired people over the years, but not in the volumes compared to law firms and, and uh, service providers. I mean, we, you know, our research and intelligence said that in 2016, 70% of the marketplace was vendor hiring, 20% was law firms, which leaves a sliver for what corporations are hiring comparatively against each other. In cybersecurity, it's quite different. Corporations are definitely looking to hire people. They are definitely hiring in greater volumes. Um, they're diversifying their organizations in terms of cybersecurity units, not necessarily being under IT or um, being a part of IT, and those groups are growing. Now, those corporations are just as challenged as all the consulting firms and, and uh, law firms to hire cybersecurity talent. And those corporations aren't always necessarily in big, major metropolitan cities. So unlike eDiscovery, where most of the hiring is still happening in big cities, 
cybersecurity is everywhere. We, you know, and, and it's also a lot bigger, right? You're talking about an industry in cyber that's $170 billion of revenue projected by 2020, and e-discovery is more like 17, so 10 times the size, which means we get requests from all over the world for cybersecurity people in ways that we just don't for e-discovery. So a lot of our work is convincing people to relocate to second- and third-tier markets that are um, in desperate need of cyber talent because that's where these corporate headquarters are for multi-billion-dollar companies. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's always a challenge to get people to kind of move from, from uproot and go to somewhere else. Um, but, you know, kind of looking at it, too, from you know, some of the challenges, we, we, we can chop through the numbers a couple different ways. And looking at it from just the education perspective, um, where, where are you seeing that there's we're not educating the talent the right way to get them in line to be the right type of cyber talent that we want? Is it does it have to start high school, junior college like where where is the where is the inception point that we have to start getting people ready that's a great question i mean i i'll share with you a, a, a short anecdote that my wife and i were talking last night my wife is eight months pregnant and we're about to have a baby boy and we're talking about all the all the things we're going to do as parents and one of the things we talked about is we should really teach our kid to code it's not something i ever learned how to do and i think that indoctrination starts as early as humanly possible i think of it this way doug and this is where e-discovery is very different than cyber. Cybersecurity, if we really look at it at the highest level of how it's going to affect our society as human beings, is like blood, right? It's that important to our existence. And just in the way that, you know, doctors monitor blood and think about the industry that's just around healthcare and taking care of the human body, the same level of industry is going to have the potential to be around cybersecurity and the internet of things and how we function as people with our machines. And so I don't think there's any age that's too early to start indoctrinating our children on the importance of this knowledge and get them excited and interested in it. And, and so that's, you know, a very philosophical answer to the question. For a more tactical answer, I think you know, look, unlike eDiscovery, there are a lot of undergraduate and graduate programs for cybersecurity. So at the high school level, I think we need to be encouraging kids to move in that direction and think not so broadly about going to just get a computer science degree, but look more nuanced at moving into security. From there, when we look at the university pool, I think those people are still very challenged to transition into a lot of the open and available jobs because we're still in a place in the industry where we don't have the time or luxury, generally speaking, to teach someone practical application of skill sets. And that's what you really have to do with most students coming out of school. And I don't think most of our clients have the patience for that right now. There are some, right? But it's still a challenge for a lot of those students to get the jobs that are out there because the employers are holding out for more proven experience. So how do those people get those proven experience? That to me is where the real gap is that we might be able to solve. And one of the things we're trying to do to solve that here at True is we have a scholarship program. Uh, we've got a lot of different partners and a lot of different software companies that give away uh, certifications to their programs or give away tickets to their conferences or give away um, three to, you know, six-month trainings 
uh, and educational opportunities for people to go in and actually get practical experience using tools and getting certified on tools that now make them more eligible for the jobs that are available because they can start billing, right? Because that's the problem in cyber on the private sector um, is if you're in a consulting firm, they want to utilize these people right away. So consulting firms hiring people right out of school, how much utilization are they going to get from them? How much investment do they have to make in them in order to get that utilization? Do they have the time for that? Do they have the human bandwidth to do that? I haven't seen a lot of that happening. Um, there are some internship programs in some of those bigger consulting firms where people have you know, gone from summer interns into employees, but not in the volumes that you would think. No, so and that I, to me is the gap. Yeah, and, and I definitely have seen very similar in, in my history of, look, I, I, it's it's that challenge of trying to get somebody, do you want to make a lateral hire somebody that's more senior, or do I want to take somebody maybe a little bit less experienced and train them the way I want it? I, I've come to find I really like the latter. I like bringing people in, maybe they're a little bit greener, but then I have to say, okay, now my investment's going to be six months to a year to necessarily get them where I need them to be. And the expectation on a junior, let's say an analyst or a senior or just from an associate down is they, they, they're supposed to be billing 40 hours a week. Um, and so to say, well, I'm going to have to actually spend six months of them being maybe, you know, half of that while I train them is a very hard sell to the business. And, but the problem is that's, that's where you get the good talent. <laughs> it is. And that talent is very aware of their value and, um, you know, their earning potential has been exponential these last few years. Yeah. And then to, to me, it then becomes a very cultural thing of, okay, now that I train them, I don't want to lose them. <laughs> so you That's have right. to really make a cultural commitment to make them not just happy, but feel like they're part of that mission. Um, and, and part of this too, what we're seeing too, certainly is, you know, half of the population is sometimes alienated from cybersecurity roles. And when you have females uh, still at a very low adoption rate with inside the industry uh, for lack of a, a better way to describe it, you know, there's, there's just not a lot of female talent within the industry. Uh, and it almost feels that at times, maybe do you think as an industry alienates half of the, half of the people that could be available? Um, maybe, I don't know if I can speak to that with anything statistically credible, but I, it's a feeling that we get here. We certainly talk to a lot more men than we do women in cybersecurity, not by choice, but just because that's what's out there. Um, I don't know that I would say that I've experienced with too many cyber people uh, um, a, uh, a lack of desire to hire women. I think, I think everybody's kind of, at least most of my clients, rally around the idea of diversity but, uh, and encourage it, but also know that they can't wait for diversity to catch up with the needs of uh, their staffing problems. Right. And so it sounds like a lot of that could also be done earlier on. And that's what we were talking about earlier is getting people more involved uh, at an earlier age becomes less of a, you know, becomes less of an odd thing. I've seen, I think a couple of the schools in New York city that have, uh, done that. They've tried to get, you know, girls who code or different types of programs where they're doing it at a, a, a early high school level. So it's less of a odd thing if they try to pick it up in college. Well, look, we have to take fear out of the word cybersecurity. And right now there's a connotation of fear associated with that word. And, you think about, I go back to the blood metaphor because I, I like it. <laughs> and, and I think, well, you don't tell people that they're never going to get sick, right? There's, there's no one out there who's a human being who doesn't get sick. So we're all going to get breached. We're all vulnerable. We're, it's not about when, or it's not about if, it's when. 
And so the sooner we as a society start accepting that reality and start thinking of the Internet of Things and cybersecurity as not a word to be feared, but rather a, you know, as corporations have addressed it in the last few years, a risk assessment. Am I going to go play with all those, you know, five to seven-year-old kids and probably get a cold? Okay, I'm going to do it because I'm here with my niece and, you know, I'm going to play with her. I'm not going to let that stop me or... Am I not? <laughs> Am I not going to do that? Am I going to go on the internet and you know look at things that maybe I shouldn't be looking at, knowing that someone's probably going to watch that? Um, I think we have to approach it differently and take fear out of it and start teaching our youth that um, internet is like blood and you're always going to be vulnerable there just as you are vulnerable for a human being. So approach interaction with the internet of things with that mentality uh, and that risk assessment with everything you do on the internet. That's where it starts. And one of the, the last parts I really want to kind of dig into, we, we talked about the numbers and shoring up some of this gap is something that I, I've been thinking about and theorizing on. I'm curious to get your opinion is, you know, is there a lack of leadership too? When we talk about senior people, you know, when I, when I try to find somebody that can maybe project manage a cybersecurity engagement or run a team, I expect them to be able to get the most out of some of those junior resources and that they can leverage them to the best of the ability. And sometimes I don't see that. So sometimes it's it's not only about just throwing more bodies at it, but really getting the right type of people in that can lead that mission and get the most out of the rest of the staff around them. It's a great question. Let me answer it in a couple of different ways. The first is, I think you've got a lot of great leaders coming out of federal who are no longer technical. And so there's this gap between their ability to lead teams of resources that need to be utilized for their technical skill set and their ability to speak that language and roll up their sleeves and do that work with them and mentor them in a way that makes the unit profitable and functional faster. So there's that gap there. And a lot of that talent from a leadership perspective has come out of federal agencies. Um, in the same notion, I look at, say, like the vendor community, the service provider and software community within cybersecurity, and you've got a lot of CEOs that are still running those companies and driving most of the business, which is very different than, say, eDiscovery, where that was the way it was 10, 15 years ago, and now they're all consolidated. They're all being driven by a more formalized sales leadership and sales culture. There are fewer small players than there ever were before. There is no middle market need discovery. There's only really big and really small at this point. Um, and in cyber, it's the total opposite. It's a highly fractured industry. So are the CEOs of these MSSPs or these service organizations or these software startups in cybersecurity, and there are hundreds of them, if not thousands across the world, that are hovering under, let's call it, 20 million bucks in revenue, are those CEOs able to develop and or hire the right leaders to scale their businesses um, with the available talent pool? I think they're really challenged to do so right now. I think that is a very, very big, real challenge is CEOs or C-level execs at companies in cyber under 20 million finding ways to doppelgang themselves or hire the right people to come in and take on the leadership that they've held responsible that's helped been the cornerstone of their success to growing their business in order to grow their business to that next level. I think that's been a real challenge. Well, that brings up an interesting point, too, is that if we look at maybe past trends uh, in, in things like e-discovery and other technology fields where you see market consolidation, do you think 
we're going to see similar things in cyber over the next, say, three, five, or ten years, where a lot of these sub sub twenty million dollar companies are going to start kind of uh, glomming together. A hundred percent, a million percent. That is exactly what is going to happen. It's going to take a little longer, probably, than eDiscovery did, because it's a much bigger industry. It's a much bigger revenue pool and there are a lot more people doing that than there were e-discovery 10 15 years ago but there is no doubt in my mind that cybersecurity will go through a chapter in its professional evolution that we label consolidation gotcha now kind of stepping back and looking at it from the hiring process what are some of the um i guess things that you look for in individuals, maybe outside of just the technical skills, when you're looking to place them? Is there a common trend that you see should be a skill set that more people should focus on developing? Well, I think all cyber professionals in general, if I'm going to speak very broadly, could benefit from um, a more thorough articulation of their skill set and a more mature professional writing style on their resumes. Can, can, that, can, we, can, we, can we group that into communication as a broad term? Absolutely. I think at the highest um, level, communication, written communication, and the ability to articulate the nuance of what they do uh, without disclosing confidential or top secret information is what we spend a lot of time coaching and mentoring the people we represent and pulling that information out and getting it on their CV or their resume. Yes, that, that's tough. Yeah, I mean, and is, does that go back to sometimes a little bit of those technical people being a little, maybe a little more introverted? It's hard to get them to be uh, think or, or, or communicate that way. Uh, yes, I also think they underestimate the um, depth or importance with which employers place on not just the tools that they know or the brands that they've worked at, but rather how they express themselves, particularly in the private sector, because the ability to talk about what you do and um, uh, be expressive and not just somebody that can like give you a report, which is what a lot of these resumes look like. They look like an incident report, <laughs> um, you know, is, is how they become attracted. I mean, it's like dating, right? Like, if you're using a dating profile, um, you know, the better your language, the more you're going to attract a potential mate, generally speaking. If you just, like, list all your stats, that, that tends to not draw attention. So it's really about expression. And uh, not all cybersecurity professionals have that as a strength. Gotcha. So what are some of the other, I would say, maybe curious about what some of the common mistakes that you see a lot of people do during the interview process as uh, potential potential hires? Well, I, <laughs> it's not specific, I, I think, to a skill set issue. It's more a cultural issue. I see a lot of cybersecurity professionals get on interviews and tell the employers what they want and what they're looking for. And I don't know if that's a millennial trend uh, a cybersecurity professional trend. Uh, uh, I've spent most of my career in the federal government, and so I'm looking for what I can get out of this now since I've, you know, paid my dues. Um, but it's a uniform trend that we see where the employee is more focused on finding out what the employer can do for them professionally than the other way around. And as a talent agent, 
And somebody who thinks, you know, my competitive differentiator as an agent is not just that I'm an expert in e-discovery and cybersecurity, but I bring a style of representation and an approach to representing people that kind of asks that that paradigm shift and that the paradigm be, what can I do for an employer to make an impact? How can I find a job where I can go and really make an impact on this company? Because I'm of the belief that if you approach the process from that perspective and you think about looking for some place where you can make an impact as opposed to how that place is going to make an impact on you, you're probably going to get all the things that you're looking for, right? Otherwise, it's just empty promises. And employees will make lots of empty promises to attract cybersecurity talent because it's a bit of a desperate game right now. Having said that, I think shifting that paradigm shift, right, and moving out of a culture of entitlement because they're such hot commodities, because they know that their skill sets are niche, unique, and valued, because they know there's a huge gap between supply and demand, that humility of shifting the paradigm and approaching the process that way are the people that are actually getting the jobs, honestly. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, it's not going to be the – the same game forever. You know, you're going to have to kind of start thinking ahead. That's of, right. You know how, <laughs> when the market does change, how are you going to position yourself? But on, on I guess on the hiring side, what are some of the things maybe organizations should be doing differently as far as recruitment and trying to get the right talent? Great question. Um, I think the challenge that most employers have is not identifying the talent, not identifying what their needs are necessarily, but aligning their expectations with the market. I think most of my time with my new clients in the first couple of weeks is spent recalibrating their understanding of the realities of the cybersecurity talent market. A lot of them come in with very wildly unrealistic expectations of what compensation metrics should be and what the compensation for these roles should pay and have aligned a lot of their research with traditional IT salary surveys, which in no way can be paralleled with what's happening in cybersecurity staffing right now. So it's a recalibration of expectation and the more open that they are to recalibrating that expectation in order to get the talent for the jobs that are right for them, or for the candidates that are right for them, uh, that will that will help them get the talent. Also having said that, I think a lot of clients are looking for people that have specific tools, specifically in the corporate side and the law firm side, because they've got a lot of legacy tools that they use. They kind of start by searching for tools. Um, and, I, and I think you're gonna see that change very quickly because some of these tools won't exist in another few years. Some of these tools will be updated and, you know, I, I mean, I have some clients that look for specific um, you know, uh, virus protection tools, and you know, I, I don't even know if we'll even be using yeah. you know virus protection software in another few years. So, so I mean, it, it's getting out of that traditional way of thinking about. I need somebody that understands this product because I need to plug them in right away, uh, and looking more at the aptitude and skill set associated with the process. I think that would be another piece of advice. Um, I don't know. Does that answer the question? Yeah, and I was just curious too. Is, it, is there other you know should employers be open to hiring outside of other areas as well? Um, You know, that there might be other industries that people can be developed from. Well, let me start by saying when it comes to sales 
and hiring business development professionals in the cybersecurity industry, particularly in the services business. And I will evangelize this for until, it's, until it happens, which it's going to, which it already is starting to. You're crazy not to look at eDiscovery talent to sell your cybersecurity services. I mean, Doug, you're a perfect example of this. That talent coming out of eDiscovery, think of it this way. For all the cybersecurity you know, service companies that are listening, if you can sell eDiscovery, which is so crazy expensive, or was at its peak, to lawyers who are the most difficult people to sell things to, partners at law firms, they are the most risk adverse, they are the most cost adverse. If you can sell these services to those people, you can learn the specifics of cyber in order to be able to sell. And there is plenty of overlap between e-discovery and information governance, the data breach remediation and preparation and breach response planning and IG on the cyber side. There's enough overlap there in terms of expertise. Those people know how to generate big bucks. There are five, 10, $20 million players. There, is not, there are not as many of those in the cybersecurity community. And so, yes, I think absolutely cyber services companies should specifically be looking at e-discovery sales reps to transition their businesses and tap into A, AMLAW, which is a, almost a completely untapped marketplace for them, and B, those fortune clients, which is where e-discovery has pivoted over the last five years, is selling directly in the corporations. They understand managed service agreements. So if you're an MSSP, an e-discovery MSA, not that different. I mean, very different in some ways, but the concept and the ability to get the right audience and explain the offering and be able to price it and get the right people that are subject matter experts in front of those CISOs, in front of those CEOs, e-discovery people are so well suited for this and know how to sell consultatively that I think cybersecurity people need to wake up to the reality that this is an untapped talent resource for them. Now, when it, when it comes to technical staff, that transition of tapping into e-discovery talent is going to take a little longer. It's happening most readily in the incident response and forensic investigation collection side, which is where you know, cybersecurity on the far right side is going to overlap with e-discovery on the far left side. And that talent I've seen you know, by getting a CEH or um, you know, getting a CISSP or learning you know, reverse malware engineering whereas before they were pure forensic investigation and collection, has allowed people from a technology perspective to parlay and transition. That's happening a lot in, in the big four, I think. Well, it's funny, you know, it's, it, it's kind of been my mantra for a couple of years when people say, well, you know, what's, there's really no similarities between incident response and uh, litigation support. I said, actually, it's, this, it's almost the same thing. You think if you're getting served a investigative notice by a government agency, a yep. lawsuit, um, or, you know, from, uh, from opposing counsel, whatever, you, you, get, you get a litigation notice. It's very similar to a third party telling you you've had a data breach because the way you gear up the people after that, it's a lot of the same people. You got to get your CEO involved, outside counsel, inside counsel, yep. get everybody in a room, say, how are we going to respond to this? Where's the data? Who has that access to it? What's the timeline? It's a lot of the same planning. So when you look at it from, again, that more mission-focused approach of what are we what are we trying to accomplish here? You find it's a huge overlap. And bringing those people in, it's funny. I've seen a lot of incident response people that were in those roles in the before of doing more of the e-discovery and collection go, oh, this is kind of an easy fit for me. It's, it's just project managing a lot of you know data questions and uh, custodian interviews and asking of who had access to what. I'll take it a step further. If you're doing a review of PII or you need to collect um, 
uh, 145 million names that you need to give a breach notification notice to, a lot of people are saying, you know what, we could use e-discovery technology like Relativity or Ringtail or iPro to put all this data into some reviewable format. We're going to be taking data from disparate resources and in, in different formats and put it all together and create some kind of functionality so we can generate an accurate list of all the names of people that need to be notified for this breach. And that's going to require human eyeballs on documents of some kind of document, as well as technology to ingest and output data with some kind of analytics overlay on top of it. So what is that's discovery? It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's literally. Really, I have I have three three incident response cases today that are exactly that. It's it's searching for PII through data sets, and we're using more e-discovery and forensic based technology to do it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's 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 definitely I think a it's it's you know the gaps that we see are, are definitely I think are achievable. It's just going to have to be I, I think some level set of the realistic expectations of one. Yes, I would agree. And I also think, you know, again, I'm making some bold statements on this interview, but I like it. Uh, cybersecurity people, and I love them. I'm fascinated by them. Um, and I represent them. Generally look down on e-discovery, right? They look at it as this pain in the tuchus that they need to do, that they have to deal with legal and they have to go collect these documents. And that's not the artistry with which they're most passionate about. But if they're not careful, these discovery people are going to catch up in terms of education and technical skill set because there aren't the kind of jobs in e-discovery that there were a decade ago. And there's a whole community of very smart, very technically savvy, very um, intellectually curious people that over the next three to five years are going to get the skill sets to fill that 3.5 million job gap in order to take jobs and compete with cybersecurity professionals. And they're going to be a lot less entitled about the kind of compensation and the kind of value of their skill sets in order to break into that new industry. Definitely some sage advice. Well, Jared, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Where can people find you? So you can find us at truestaffingpartners.com. That's T-R-U staffingpartners.com. Um, we're constantly doing webinars. I'm constantly speaking at conferences. We have lots of uh, articles about e-discovery, uh, cybersecurity, where the market's headed, lots of statistical information up on our website. You can view our state of the industry video from 2017, which talks about the current state of e-discovery and cybersecurity in the global marketplace on our website. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. We, we love feedback from any of the interviews we give. So I welcome that as well as anybody that has additional follow-up questions or wants information about the market. We're here for that. Great. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. Well, Jared, I greatly appreciate the time and uh, really enjoyed the interview today. So thanks for taking the, taking, the, uh, taking the time to speak to me. Doug, the pleasure is always mine. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.